You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 441 of this podcast. Today is Friday, July 29th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about whether Christians should ever challenge someone's authority. Should we, as Christians in particular, just do what we're told? Some say, answer to that question is pretty much always yes. But I think in my study of the scriptures and of history, my observation of my own life and the lives of others in my vicinity, there is more we have to consider. That is what I have learned from my study of those things, my observations, my considerations. Like for instance, What happens to self-control if someone who claims authority over us actually is superseding control over us, which we should be exercising ourselves? We should be self-controlled. How does that fact coincide with claims made on our allegiance, obedience, submission, our need to do what we're told. So this leads into a whole host of additional questions. Like for instance, who has rightful authority over you? And let's suppose for the sake of this topic, we're talking about somebody who does have jurisdiction. They do have authority over you. Is it ever right to question whether they are overstepping their boundaries. Are there boundaries? Do we recognize that there are boundaries at all? And following from that, do we know where the boundaries are? If there should be boundaries in our relationship to authority, we need to know where they should be drawn. So a couple of exercises of authority. Briefly, I think this is pretty well exhaustive. If you can come up with another category please let me know. But authority may, to my way of thinking, tell you what you should and should not think, feel, and believe. An authority should tell you what to do if they are in authority over you, but they may also, as a means to that end, tell you what you should think and feel and believe in order to get you to do what they want you to do or say what they want you to say or not do or not say what they want you to not say and not do. So also then, authority may tell you what you can and cannot say, more to the point. They may not tell you always what you can think, feel, and believe, but they may tell you what you can and cannot say. Also, authority may tell you what you can and cannot do. And usually that is the progression, right? We realize we want you to do or not do something. Therefore, especially if we're talking about a group activity, (laughs) we will tell you what you can and cannot say. Because if you say something which would prevent or discourage or encourage behaviors that we don't want others engaging in, we are going to tell you what you can and cannot say. And we're going to stop you or 
require you to influence those around you towards the end of right action, so-called, as the authority figure sees it. Well, so also, if we are talking about the connection between what we say or don't say and the internal world known to God fully and also to some extent known to us by what we say and what we do and what we don't say and what we don't do, an authority figure may get at what it is that you're thinking and feeling and believing and try to correct that. If you can get to the root, since as Christians we believe out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, also we believe that, as James says, I will show you my faith by my works. What I believe will connect with what I do. There's just no two ways about it. What I think and what I feel will connect with what I say. There's just no two ways about it. A wise or at least shrewd authority figure knows these connections and understands these connections between the internal world and what we say and what we do. And that really is a comprehensive list of what an authority figure may tell you as far as thinking, feeling, believing, saying, doing. Arguments from authority on a related note are typically predicated on some legitimate claim to authority, even if those arguments are made by those who do not personally hold the authority they are speaking of. So long as they can cite the authority in support of their claim or argument, they don't have to necessarily possess that authority themselves to refer to it. And so that's what we mean here by arguments from authority. Someone is citing an authority figure, perhaps not themselves, although also perhaps themselves, but they are citing an authority to support the claim or argument on our thinking, feeling, believing, speech, and action. Also, too, an important note about arguments from authority. They are logical fallacies if the claims made or the arguments made are false and the authority is presumed to have a kind of overriding influence on that realization. So we recognize that a claim or an argument is false or unreasonable, or it does not find support in the evidence. And yet the fallback is essentially, if you will, because I said so, right? This authority told you what to do, and it doesn't matter if it makes sense to you. They told you what to say or what to not say. It doesn't matter if it makes objective sense to you, or if they're sophisticated, they will say, this is what you're supposed to think. This is how you're supposed to feel. This is the belief you are allowed to have and hold to and profess, and therefore you will act and speak accordingly. Also, too, it's important to note, with regards to logical fallacies, they can be accidental. Uh, An argument from authority, when it is a logical fallacy, is something we can slip into without realizing it. Uh, But it can also be employed capriciously. And what I mean there is an argument from authority can be employed with full knowledge that it will be destructive and malicious, that it will derail efforts by those uh, to whom the argument from authority is directed in their efforts at knowing, understanding, and acting according to truth and goodness. I'm not saying whether most people are accidental or intentional. I'm just saying I think those are the two categories. We can accidentally make a fallacious argument from authority. We can also intentionally do so because we just want what we want and we don't care who we hurt in the process of getting what we want. Now, an important point related 
to this. And actually, this is the primary reason for my recording this podcast episode is that I do believe authority should be questioned or opposed by Christians if the authority is immoral. That is, it actively does wrong or it prevents right action. If authority is behaving in an immoral way, it should be questioned or opposed. Human authority, that is. Now, if the human authority is ungodly also, we should question or oppose it. Ungodly, pure meaning the authority is being wielded in such a way to the end of either actively or passively requiring disobedience to God. In other words, the authority is telling you to commit a sin of either omission or commission. That is to say, God told you to do the right thing, and the authority in question is telling you to not do that thing. The authority in question is prohibiting you from doing that thing, forbidding you to do that thing. Also, too, on the flip side, God has told you to not do a certain thing, and the authority in question, human authority in question, is telling you to do that thing. You will do this ungodly thing. You will disobey God and you will obey me. If that is what the authority figure is getting at, the authority figure should be questioned or opposed. Also, too, if the authority figure in question is behaving in an unlawful way or requiring you, demanding of you that you also behave in an unlawful way. This gets a little bit trickier because sometimes the authority figure in question is the one from whom our human laws, our legal system, uh, derives its details, its statutes, its enforcement, its adjudication. But I would say, in general, if an authority figure is violating the very laws which it presumes to derive its authority from, that authority figure should be questioned or opposed. So also, if authority is unreasonable, we should question it at least, if not outright oppose it, because the unreasonableness very likely will be in connection to the questions of morality, godliness, and lawfulness. If the authority figure is speaking and operating out of folly or sin and refuses to give a just accounting of its actions or what's driving those actions or its statements or what's driving those statements, or if there's just a question, right? This does not make sense. This is seeming to me as though it might be folly or this might be sin. Some things are being concealed, which I don't understand the reason for concealing. This just doesn't add up. Can I get some more information? If they're stonewalling you, it may be necessary to question authority and find out more. Research, dig in, appeal to another authority who has oversight capacity. Also too, and this is related, I'm hopefully not being redundant, authority when it is arbitrary should be questioned and possibly even opposed. If authority is arbitrary, it should be questioned or opposed. And what do I mean about arbitrariness here? The basis for the decisions being made is subjective, internal, secretive, and inconsistent. There is a partiality. There is an inherent injustice to what decisions are being made, what orders are being given, what statements are being made. When that is the case, we should question and potentially, depending on the answers to the questions and as we get more information, find out more, uh, you know, possibly where we find that there is a question of morality, there's a question of godliness, there's a question of lawfulness, there's a question of reasonableness, we may find that we need to question or oppose 
someone who is in authority, possibly. Now, authority, I think, when it is concerning, or maybe to put it a different way, the kind of authority we want to guard against putting ourselves under comes in at least two forms. One being slavery. (laughs) We do not want to make ourselves slaves. I think that's fairly self-evident, but sometimes euphemisms for other kinds of relationships which amount to slavery can conceal this being a self-evident fact in particular situations. So I'm stating it directly because slavery is a word we have strong feelings about in our day, and rightly so. But other kinds of relationships, as they come to resemble more and more slavery, ought to be regarded as undesirable and detestable even, and something to avoid or get out of if it's possible to. If it's not possible to, you find out you have been made a slave and there's nothing for it, well then pray and ask God for wisdom. And on some level, at least with regards to God, if there is no escape route, be content and seek to honor God in your circumstance. But if you can avoid finding yourself enslaved to someone, do, (laughs) do. Uh, The Old Testament gives laws and commands with regards to the treatment of slaves. Also too, the Old Testament has some very, very strong penalties for a sin known as man-stealing. So let's say hypothetically, we have a scenario in which a young lady or a child is kidnapped and they are being carried away into bondage. They're going to be held against their will. They're probably going to be threatened with physical pain and or death if they disobey their captors, and they will be put to some use which is not to their interest. If someone is caught doing this, that is stealing people, kidnapping people, enslaving people, they should be afraid. They should be very afraid of the penalties which are due their sin by a holy and righteous God. Now, there are some checks here because not all slavery in the Bible is the same. And I know that's a very bitter pill for some to swallow and they don't like it and they don't want to hear that and they want to throw the whole Bible out because they have a higher principle as they see it than believing that God's word is inerrant. But if you will, God knows better. And so we do well To regard God's requirements, his penalties, his prohibitions, his commands in their totality and to not pick and choose. Also, we do well to consider that a holy and righteous and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, eternal God knows something more than we do, perhaps. Also, too, by his definition, by his godness, we should regard him as the highest good, And the source, in fact, of all of these other principles. If he is not the source of those other principles, then I would argue all is subjective, all is up in the air. Anything can be anything, in which case you will not get less slavery. You will get more slavery and more unreasonableness and more tyranny. And tyranny really is the other category of authority we want to avoid putting ourselves under or keeping ourselves under. Tyranny, as opposed to slavery, holds that the interests and rights of an individual are given no weight and no consideration compared with what is presented as the collective good, whether rightly or wrongly. Slavery holds that the individual is the property or material or resource of others. This is also, on a related note, Part of why HR, standing for human resources, has always made me cringe. Because essentially what you are doing when you say human resources is you are admitting that you see these people as a resource 
And we need to be very careful about that. Uh, all too often, it's kind of an open secret and a running joke that HR is there for the company. HR is not primarily there for you as an employee. I'm sorry to tell you, that's been my experience. If it's in the company's interest, objectively, to treat their people with dignity and respect, and you have some good companies out there that are doing that, they're treating their people with dignity and respect, that is well. But unfortunately, very often, HR ends up doing damage control for bad actors in companies and treating employees as more or less disposable unless their hands are forced. If they have to cut loose a manager who was behaving badly because the letter of the law outside of the corporation said X, Y, and Z, and there's just no defense for this way of acting or relating to an employee, well, then they'll do what they have to do because at the end of the day, they're there for the company. But so also, if you have been mistreated and you can be dismissed in a way that uh, also protects the company and that's less expensive, less costly, easier, more expedient for various reasons, it's perceived to be more profitable. There again, uh, we need to be very careful <laughs> about what we call slavery and what we regard as being uh, near enough, actually, near enough. Slavery, when unchecked by either limitations or abolition, invariably leads to the abuse of slaves by masters. And this is just a fact of man's sinful nature. It's not unique to any one tribe or nation or people. It's not unique to a certain gender. It's not unique to a certain age group. It's not unique to a certain socioeconomic class. Man's sinful nature takes a nearly limitless uh, variety of forms. And so what we should be concerned about is not just a certain demographic uh, or everyone else besides ourselves. We should be very concerned about man's sinful nature unchecked and actually rightful authority God-given, God-ordained authority is a blessing and a check against man's sinful nature. But more on that as we go. Tyranny, by contrast to slavery, doesn't necessarily regard as slaves all the citizens and subjects, but insofar as the interests and rights of the individual are always subordinated to what is perceived or what is presented to be in the collective good, rightly or wrongly, tyranny actually always ends up destroying the collective good. And there's always an element of hubris and pride and selfishness in the part of the ruling class in a tyrannical government, in a tyrannical state. The other side of the coin, very often, this is something we have to be very concerned about. If you're not one of those people, you will be of the other kind. <laughs> there's at least two kinds of people in the world with regards to tyranny. Hopefully there's a third. <laughs> but there's at least two. There are tyrants and there are those who live under tyrants and who permit tyrants to be uh, tyrannical, either because they're afraid or because they are ambivalent, because they're self-indulgent, because they're foolish, because they're unrighteous. There's a lot of reasons, but at the end of the day, you can enable tyranny so long as there is something that the tyrant offers or threatens which you care more about than the fact that they are going to abuse you and other people now or in the future when you give them absolute power, absolute control over you and everyone. But again, as with slavery, unchecked by either limitations or abolition, tyranny invariably leads to the abuse of subjects and citizens due to man's sinful nature. It invariably leads to the abuse of subjects and citizens. Slavery invariably leads to the abuse of slaves by masters, tyranny invariably leads to the abuse of subjects and citizens. 
and both together, it's because of man's sinful nature. It's not because of the system. It's because of the heart issue. It's because of what we believe to be true and right and good and what we believe our duty to be. But moving on, some important things to remember with regards to authority. Not only that authority in the abstract is from God and a good thing, generally speaking, it's also important to recognize that biblical authority always comes with checks and balances when we're talking human authority. Human authority from God always contains checks and balances. If none other than the fact that God himself will, at a certain point, bring justice on wicked rulers and wicked people for that matter, because very often the two go hand in hand, but God at a minimum, at the very least, and that's not, that's not, that's not to say it's of no account, but it is to say, if not checked by us, and if not checked by God working through us, God himself, again and again throughout the scriptures, shows himself not only able to, but consistently wanting to, based on his nature, provide a check and a balance for wicked and corrupt authorities. Now, in a good sense, that's the sad, scary, disturbing stuff. In a good sense, let's talk about three spheres of authority, which are biblical, which are authoritative in the life of the Christian, which we have to recognize as being for our benefit and which we should submit to, perhaps with some qualifications. So for one, you have the sphere of the family. Family authority contains checks and balances. Husbands are told by God to live with their wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? Well, I would say, personally, that includes but is not limited to husbands observing their wives. That includes but is not limited to (laughs) husbands listening to their wives. Now, listening here can have a lot of connotations for various people. What I don't mean is what I have heard that Husbands may be the head, but the woman is the neck, and she turns the man wherever she wants him to turn, and he will lead in that direction. That's not authority. That is usurpation. That's ungodly. If you hear somebody telling you about how great their marriage is, but that's really what they're describing, is that the husband is the figurehead, but the real power behind the throne the real one calling the shots is the wife, that's not the biblical ideal. There's a lot of not ideal ways that a marriage can orient itself, but that is one of them, definitely. Husbands are told to live with their wives in an understanding way. That means, for me personally, I observe how my wife is doing. That means that I listen to what she has to say. That means sometimes I ask her actively, what do you think about this? Do you have any information that might be helpful? Any insights? I need an outside perspective because I'm not sure I'm being objective about this. I ask her input or I observe, and then I will be considerate of my wife. I am not afraid of my wife. I am considerate of my wife. And there's a huge world of distinction between those two things. Also, too, similarly, fathers, since we're talking about the head of the home here and I am the head of my home, fathers, yes, have a responsibility to wield authority over their children. No doubt about it. But also, the scriptures give us a check against fathers wielding authority in an arbitrary way in an unreasonable way, in unlawful, ungodly, immoral ways, by telling fathers to not exasperate, to not frustrate, to not provoke to wrath their 
children. So there is a check and a balance, even just in the structure of the home, when we're talking about family authority. Fathers have a command from Almighty God to not exasperate their children. Now, what that doesn't mean is if my four-year-old son, John, says, I want some strawberry milk or I want the cinnamon roll, I therefore am duty-bound so long as he might throw a fit to give him exactly what he wants, exactly when he wants it. No, that is not what that means. What it means is that if my son asks for a reasonable thing, if he asks me for a glass of water, I am not going to say no just to see if I can get a reaction out of him. If my son asks me for some lunch, I am not going to tease him with something that is gross. Hey, yeah, you want to eat this? You want to eat this nasty food that needs to actually be thrown out? Hmm? How about that? Yeah, eat it. I'm in authority. No, that's perverse and that's wrong and that's wicked and it's disobedient. And God will judge men who routinely do those sorts of things harshly. They ought to repent because that's ungodly. It's wicked. They are provoking their children to wrath and they know they're doing it and they need to stop it. But so also in a similar way, (laughs) civil authority is another sphere. Civil authority, we are shown in the biblical text, contains checks and balances. So, for instance, consider the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, no, no, respectfully, no. So, in one instance, in the book of Daniel, they are given the king's food, but the king's food is not kosher. God said, that his people, Israel, were supposed to eat certain things and not supposed to eat certain other things. God also said that certain foods are permissible, but they need to be prepared in such and such a way. If the animal is to be butchered, it is not supposed to be killed and butchered in this way. And you're supposed to handle the process of giving this food to a person in such and such a way, otherwise it's unclean. God says no. So these youths find themselves in the Babylonian captivity and they ask if they can be given a different diet. Can we please just have legumes and water? They ask respectfully. Their request is granted. God blesses their faithfulness, their obedience, their representation of obedience to his authority That's an important thing to consider with regards to civil authority. Also, they're told at one point, in fact, everyone is told at a certain point, to bow down to a golden statue of the king on pain of being thrown into a fiery furnace. There is a definite or else attached to the order. And again, I would refer you back to why I would say authority should be questioned or opposed if it is immoral, ungodly, unlawful, unreasonable, and arbitrary. Now, they don't launch into, at least according to the text, a lengthy disposition about authority. They don't launch into a diatribe about all the reasons why. Let me tell you, they just say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. They're thrown into the fire, and God rewards again their obedience and their faithfulness to his authority. So also, an edict is concocted that no one is allowed to pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. This edict is intended to trip up and entrap and ensnare Daniel. The order is strategically designed to get him out of the way. It is capricious, and the king doesn't realize that's what's up. He's flattered, he's cajoled, he's manipulated into going along with this, and then Daniel hears about it, goes home, and immediately prays to God. His rivals at court, 
report this to the king, and the king is very grieved. But here again, he won't rescind his order right away because that would undermine his authority. And that is the double trap. They knew that he wouldn't rescind it, and also that if he did, they could capitalize on that. We're either going to get Daniel out of the way or we're going to get the king out of the way, in which case it'll be a two for one. We'll get Daniel out of the way after we get the king out of the way, after he's undermined his own authority. Nevertheless, Daniel's thrown to the lions. God sends an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel comes through unscathed because God recognizes and rewards his obedience and his faithfulness to God's authority. Fast forward into the New Testament, religious authority also must contain checks and balances. Look in the book of Acts at the apostles being hauled before the Sanhedrin and being soberly, sternly ordered to not preach Jesus anymore. They're released, they go back out, and they immediately start preaching Jesus again. They are brought to the Sanhedrin again, and they're asked, what are you doing? (laughs) Didn't we tell you to stop that? Didn't we tell you to not do that? And the response is, we must obey God rather than man. And that ultimately is, in short, in brief, a check on religious authority. If religious authority is telling us to disobey God to the end of obeying the human authority, our response is supposed to be what the response of the apostles was. We must obey God rather than man. But a little bit more here on authority and self-control, because This is actually, in some measure at least, related. How do you know, in part, the difference between tyranny and benevolent rule? Well, I'll give it to you this way. Tyranny, which you could also call totalitarianism, holds the notion of self-control in contempt and sees it as an ever-present threat to the control of the governing authorities over the will of the governed. The will is seen as an object of wrath insofar as it is not totally subjected to the one in authority. If you have a will of your own, that is a problem to the totalitarian. Tyrants feel threatened when subjects have independent thoughts, have different opinions, have different ideas, who, who's going to disagree if to disagree is to take your life in your hands? If they have control over a lot of mechanisms to either withhold blessings or else destroy you materially. If you disagree, if you challenge them on anything. That is tyranny. And that is how tyranny relates to the idea of self-control. Tyranny sees self-control as a threat. Benevolent rule, by contrast, respects, defends, and upholds self-control by protecting it from predators of various kinds, both internal and external. If You're dealing with a benevolent ruler. Yes, they will wield authority, but how and where and against whom and why will be markedly different than if you're used to a totalitarian or a tyrant. The benevolent ruler is there to reward those who do good, not to try and force them to do only a certain good, but don't do any other good. And you're only going to do the good that I think is good, but you won't do any of the other good. A governing authority doing its job, its God-given job, will punish the evildoer. And the totalitarian says, ah, well, we know who does good 
And we know who does evil based on who does whatever we tell them to do. That's the test for the totalitarian. There is no room for self-control except you will use all of your self-control in subjection. Your self-control will be employed to give all control over you to the totalitarian. Is that biblical, though? Is that godly? Is that appropriate? Is that right? Is that God's vision for the use of self-control? That's an important question. That's an important question that Christians need to grapple with. The benevolent ruler recognizes threats to your ability to exercise self-control in a good God-honoring way within your sphere. So, for instance, where we get category confusions is where the civil government starts telling churches, for instance, you cannot meet at all, indefinitely. That is an overstepping of the bounds. That is one of those we must obey God rather than men moments. Maybe temporarily, to use a Doug Wilson analogy here, if the police show up at your church on a Sunday morning and they say, hey, we received a credible threat of a bomb having been planted in your church, which is not far-fetched right now with as much anger as there is on the left in America with regards to overturning Roe v. Wade. But let's say the police show up on a Sunday morning and they say, hey, we need everyone to evacuate the building right now. We're going to search for this bomb. And then let's say everyone evacuates because that would be wise. But then let's suppose after you get out of the building, they shut and lock the doors and they say, okay, go ahead, go home. And a week goes by and you come back next Sunday and they say, nope, still not safe. The bomb didn't go off, but it's still not safe. You still can't go in there. And another week and another week and another week and months roll by and they're still telling you, nope, it's not safe. At a certain point, (laughs) you have to say, we must obey God rather than man. At a certain point, whether you are literally bending a knee is beside the point. The bending of a knee is really not the issue. The bending of the knee is important for what it symbolizes. And what it symbolizes is an internal condition of the heart and the mind with regards to the golden statue of the king. Even the golden statue of the king is not the issue in and of itself. The golden statue of the king is an issue for what it represents. So what we have to regard as antithetical to godliness is an approach to human authority which regards human government as God. It doesn't really matter whether we're talking literally getting down on your hands and knees, prostrating yourself, putting your forehead to the floor before a statue made of gold representing the executive. That's really beside the point. It is a condition of the heart and of the mind, which we need to be on guard against. But again, where we have to recognize that it's not all or nothing, it's not either totalitarianism or anarchy, is in reading Romans 13 and in seeing that even when there is a, O king, moment, O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. There's still a respect there insofar as they are able to obey without bowing down. So then you come to a question like the apostles being hauled before the Sanhedrin. Are they being told to literally bow down and worship the Sanhedrin? Not in the same way as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were given choices or else (laughs) fiery furnace or else a lion's den being eaten by lions. But nevertheless, at root, in principle, they were being given the same choice. They were being given the same temptation. So here's a question for you. What is the one in authority either encouraging or coercing by turn? 
So here, I think those are the two primary levers of power, encouragement or coercion, incentive or threat. What is the one in authority, encouraging or coercing by turn? Encouragement here, meaning to give courage. They are increasing your boldness, removing penalties, reducing fear, offering protection, promising rewards. If you act in a certain way, they want you to act. And that is generally actually a function of the governing authorities. That is what they are supposed to do. They are supposed to, according to Romans 13, reward those who do good, carrot, punish those who do evil, stick, encouragement, coercion, the two levers of power. We're going to incentivize certain things and we are going to de-incentivize or disincentivize other things. Now, coercion, in contrast to encouragement, encouragement, you are giving courage. Coercion, you are taking away courage. You are using fear as a motivator. Typically, you're adding penalties besides just whatever the natural consequences would be for a certain action, but you're working on the basis of threats issued and examples made out of others who did not behave the way the one in authority wanted them to behave. This is the whole reason for crucifixion, by the way. The fact that Christ was crucified and that crucifixion was a popular means of public execution in the first century AD is directly tied to the use of fear as a motivator. You're not just punishing this man. You're punishing him in such a way as is designed to spread fear throughout the community. This man is going to be made an example of don't break the law or this will happen to you as well. Don't cross us or we will do this to you too. Spread the word. But we should ask, we should ask the question, what is the one in authority encouraging and coercing by turn? What incentives are supposed to drive us to act or not act, speak or not speak, think, feel, and believe, or not think, feel, and believe. Also, too, what threats which have been issued or examples made are supposed to drive us towards submission, compliance. Now, briefly, I want to outline just a couple of basic types of justice, so-called, that we have to reckon with, two which are legitimate, one which is illegitimate, and yet (laughs) it is in the mix, nevertheless. First of all, retributive justice. Think here of the word retribution. This is the kind of justice which inflicts punishment on persons as vengeance for either immoral or criminal acts. This is a punishment designed to curb or else stop a certain action moving forward. Or we're just saying this is what you get. We are punishing you because you did something wrong or you broke the law. You are being punished. But there's more than just retributive justice. There's also restorative justice. Restorative justice is where you seek to repair harm done by an offensive statement or action. So for instance, biblically speaking, a man is caught stealing from someone. The penalty in the Old Testament was not to throw him in prison, and it certainly wasn't to chop off his arm, and it certainly wasn't to put him to death. If you're stealing a man's, oh, let's say money bag, and you're caught, restorative justice is you pay that man back. Actually, not just what you stole, you're going to pay that man back seven times over, sevenfold. Avenged sevenfold, by the way, pretty sure the band name is derived from that concept. I could be wrong. Somebody fact check me by all means, but I'm just guessing. Restorative justice is about rewarding those who do good and about restoring them after they've been harmed by someone else's immoral or criminal action or statement against them. 
In addition to those first two categories of justice, we also have a third so-called category of justice. This one is distributive. This one has to do with the socially just allocation of resources. And that's a direct quote from Wikipedia. Socially just. You hear this? And yes, in fact, you should think social justice. What is a socially just allocation of resources? Well, I'm glad you asked. At its root, communism. Your fair share, my fair share, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. The first two categories here, retributive and restorative, are biblical. Distributive, the closest you could get would be the year of Jubilee, I think. Particularly if you're saying this is something that's going to be societal, nationwide, periodic. The year of Jubilee comes to mind. I actually would not mind if we had a year of Jubilee, if we implemented that into our system that would be wise. It's not for no reason that God put that into the system of government and law, the republic, which uh, ancient Israel was. You could say it was a theocracy, but theocracy is the rule of the priests. I think Os Guinness is right that ancient Israel, by God's design, was actually a republic. But the socially just allocation of resources, as if argumentum ad populum is also not a logical fallacy. By the way, if you add two logical fallacies together, you don't suddenly get better logic. You probably actually are going to get a compound fracture of logic. We're going to say that this authority is an authority because it's popular, and then we're going to argue that such and such a course of action should be taken because it's popular and also the authority said so. Never mind that those two claims are basically one and the same thing because you derive authority from the consent of the masses. It doesn't matter to the larger question of what has God said? Is your course of action moral? Is it godly? Is it lawful? Is it reasonable? Or... Is it arbitrary? And if it is immoral, ungodly, unlawful, unreasonable, arbitrary, the fact that it's popular is really moot. For that matter, being able to refer to someone with authority derived from elections, particularly when we have some questions about the integrity of our elections, is not sufficient. So in closing, again here, this goes back to the question of there being three spheres of authority, biblically, the home, the church, and the civil magistrate. Those three spheres may have connection points and some overlap, but broadly speaking, they are distinct and separate. When one tries to behave as the others, you get category confusion and you get trouble. And typically, when one tries to behave as one of the others, you also run increasingly the risk of tyranny and totalitarianism. What that doesn't mean, however, on the flip side, is that you shouldn't have conversations back and forth between all three spheres. Because when there stops being a conversation between the home and the church and the civil authorities, they're also you will have a tendency towards totalitarianism or a hands-off approach, which is so negligent, the question of justice of any kind, that it leads to smaller scale enslavement of men, women, and children. What we don't want is to make ourselves subjects to a totalitarian state. Also, at the same time, and for just the same reasons, we don't want to make ourselves slaves to arbitrary men whether because they kidnapped us or they misled us, they deceived us, they got us locked into a dishonest, deceptive arrangement or contract, and now we're stuck. If there's no recourse to a higher authority ever, well then that's just what it is. 
But when all three spheres are working as they ought to, and they are possessing each a accelerator pedal and a brake pedal, <laughs> they can take off from a stop. They can also stop before going over a cliff or plowing into a building. Then what you find is the checks and balances between these various spheres promote happiness, health, peace. These are good things to want, and they are supposed to be the fruits of good government. We should want peace. We should not want peace on just any terms whatsoever, and we should not want just any kind of peace. If you accept peace on any terms whatsoever, you will get very, very different kinds of peace. Let me tell you. But we should, generally speaking, want peace, and we should want it on God's terms. Also, too, I am not into health and wealth prosperity theology, but I am for prosperity. What we don't do, if we're obedient, faithful Christians, is we don't see a brother who is naked and hungry and homeless and jobless and destitute and suffering and say to them, be warmed and filled. All your problems are spiritual. You need to repent of being naked and hungry. If they're lazy, they need to repent of being lazy. But if they're oppressed, if they are enslaved, well, then we start looking at how can we deliver them from bondage. If God has given us the ability to do that, restorative justice is justice, biblically. If a man is being stolen from and we catch the thief in flagrante, restorative justice is biblical justice. Although this is where the social justice crowd twists the scriptures because they will say, ahaha, if you belong to a class of people who have ever once upon a time, according to our argumentation and Howard Zinn, been oppressed, then we will take indiscriminately from those who belong to the class that we regard as the oppressor, again, according to Howard Zinn or Karl Marx, vote for us or stay out of our way. Again, we have to recognize when somebody with a claim to authority, either A, does not actually possess the authority they are bluffing they possess, also too, we have to recognize when Somebody with legitimate authority is overstepping the proper bounds. They have superseded their authority. They have exceeded their mandate. They have authority, but they don't have this authority. They don't have the authority they're trying to wield, even though they do have some authority. The test for this and the ultimate safeguard for our consciences, for our reasonableness, for our ability to be wise is God's word searching the scriptures, praying and asking God for wisdom, remembering and reminding one another in our fellowships, in our assemblies, in our gatherings, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love. And yes, depending on your translation, self-control or a sound mind. God forbid we forget that and encourage one another as well to downplay that. But that's all I've got for this episode. Hopefully it's encouraging, instructive, helpful in thinking through these things. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode in which I am still working on the details, but I am clarifying what I actually want to discuss just very, very briefly. Nuthetic counseling. I found the word for it and I'm going to do some research, try and dig into it, understand it better. But I'd like to talk about mental health in relation to psychology. How should the Christian relate to these things? What does God's word say? Is nuthetic counseling biblical? Why or why not? But that's a future episode. So stay tuned for that coming up soon enough, I hope. For now, as always, 
Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. Maybe a rock and roll addict dancing on the stage. Money does it to command women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.